0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins and outs and nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic
1: is... Windsor McKay.
0: Who was Windsor McKay? Well, simply put, he's the man who ostensibly established the visual language of comics and is one of the most beloved illustrators of all time. He's also a raconteur, a performer, an icon of the turn of the century culture. He also happens to be one of the few cartoonists who didn't die penniless and alone. Probably because he invented.
1: Say it as written.
0: I hate you. Probably because he invented something that would impact just about every person in America. In America. Act 1. Canada is the new America. Or was it the other way around? Xenius Windsor McKay was born on, well, sometime between 1866 and 1871. Records are spotty on this. Even McKay himself set multiple dates over the course of his life. In his obituary in the New York Herald Tribune, it quoted McKay as saying, Not even Mr. McKay knew his exact age surprise surprise this cartoonist from over 120 years ago is dead
1: every turn of the century raconteur has to not know when he was actually born
0: yeah it's it's part of the uh part of the dna structure of what makes it a legendary genius Mm -hmm. legend has it that mckay started drawing at a very young age because of a fire that swept through his town of spring lake michigan he began drawing the carnage he witnessed out of his dining room window and began etching with a nail on a pane of glass. Every artist has a tragic origin story, or they're just kind of introverts. One of the two.
1: Can you think of uh, any other similar um, or, I mean, tragic origin stories? is very broad, but more situations more similar to this um, off the top of your head? Uh, not that I'm comparing the two people whatsoever. But um, it kind of weirdly reminds me of the story that Rob Zombie has told about what inspired him to become an artist or, you know, a filmmaker or a musician or just the, the way that he, you know, the, the specific interest he has in telling these like horror stories, whether it's in his music or movies. Um, I'm not a fan of Rob Zombie's films uh, personally, but um, he was whenever he was a kid uh, in the in the 60s, I guess he had just moved into this neighborhood and it was not a great neighborhood. And he was sitting in the kitchen at the kitchen table and he was looking out the window and he said that um, a, a huge naked fat guy just ran by covered in blood and he had he was showering and he had been stabbed and he had just and he was just running through the streets screaming and he just was like sitting in his house witnessing that and that was kind of like the the, the pivotal moment where he became inspired to you know be interested in like macabre gore filled horror storytelling or whatever the thing that's interesting to me about that, despite the fact that I'm not personally a fan of Rob Zombie's movies, is the way that it's like this and the Windsor, Windsor McKay story. It's it's about somebody viewing something sort of removed from it. You like within within the comfort of your own home looking out of a, 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 you know, a window, which is like a screen into uh, this world that you are kind of separated off from and you're kind of insulated from and you're just kind of like observing it as a voyeur. And the way that that translates into like, I want to create stories that are inside of this screen or inside of this box that you can peer into and kind of voyeuristically, you know, experience this thing, you know, from the comfort of your own home, sitting on your couch, you know, looking through a window. That's very fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, I mean I I don't know if I can think of one that's directly one to one that but there, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people who use it as escapism, right? Like well I mean I guess Siegel and Schuster is a perfect example because Joe Schuster is Canadian, came here, moved to Columbus, Ohio, befriended a young guy named Jerry Siegel, whose dad owned a convenience store, and his dad was gunned down in a late night robbery. And as a means of coping with that trauma, Jerry began to fantasize about what it would be like to be bulletproof. And then you get Superman. Um,
1: That's also why for the first 30 years of Superman comics, he just worked at a convenience store as as a cashier.
0: Yeah, a lot of people don't give the golden age Superman convenience store enough credit. You know, like we wouldn't have clerks without Superman and the convenience store years. Um, but you know, you also have you know people like Jack Kirby, where his you know he was he was like in gangs and shit. You know, he like was a part of Brooklyn gang culture in the nineteen twenties and thirties. Um, and then obviously, during the forties, went to World War two, killed a bunch of Nazis, had post traumatic stress, and then sat in a room for the next fifty years, drawing four pages a day, trying to get the trauma out of him.
1: And he did it, and died happy
0: yeah that's definitely how the Jack Kirby story ends he dies happy <laughs> no but there's I mean, I mean e- even you know thinking about some like like Dr. Dre and, and the and NWA like that's a very for some similar- reason
1: because we we're talking about Jack Kirby I thought you were gonna say Dr. Doom so when you said Dr. Dre it just like really threw me for a loop and I and for a second I just forgot who Dr. Dre was and I was like Dr. Dre who the fuck is that <laughs>
0: <laughs> the really obscure Fantastic Four <laughs>
1: villain Dr. Dre.
0: <laughs> no, uh you know, Dr. Dre and and a lot of the stuff that comes out of came out of it. oh my god. <laughs> Every time I say Dr. Dre, you just almost do a spit take. I forgot about Dre.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, you forgot about Dre. I don't even need to finish the point. You,
1: now you have to. We can't have spent all this time on this.
0: No, I don't give a shit. I'm moving on. Everybody gets the point I'm making. They came from- Dr.
1: Dre's brother died. They came, you know, reality raps. They, you know, that, that was the origin of gangster rap was reality raps where people, whether whether it was true stories that they actually experienced or just stories that they heard from other people and interpreted, it was writing about real life experiences that they were having or that their friends were having.
0: Exactly, Windsor McKay moved around a lot as a young man. Various places: Michigan, Chicago, and then Cincinnati. He would work as an illustrator of posters, an engraver, and even a political cartoonist. It's, uh, I've included one of his political cartoons here for us to talk about, which is Uncle Sam.
1: I don't know. If he was still alive and drew this yesterday.
0: I know, right? Uh, so it's, it's it is a timeless illustration that literally could be released tomorrow. It's from eighteen ninety nine, and it is. Uncle Sam being lashed to a a tree with the word imperialism scrolled down the side of the tree, and uh, Uncle Sam is tied to it because he is um, he's holding a leash to a donkey, and the donkey has obviously run around him multiple times, lashing him to this tree, and it's attempting to pull away, keeping him perennially pressed up against the tree of imperialism, which, as you just said. Literally, you could put this out tomorrow and it would be applicable.
1: Interestingly, the tree is a palm tree, which is a which is an interesting touch.
0: Yeah. Uh, also, there is a figure off in the distance who I'm assuming is some sort of political figure or folkloric figure of the day that I just don't know. He's like walking down this little path away from the tree that has Uncle Sam tied to it. And I, I don't know that that person's significance, but it's too prominent for it not to be something.
1: I think that's Denver, the last dinosaur
0: copy that from january of 1903 on mckay was working in the world of comics which basically didn't exist as we think of them today many of the early comic strips were rooted in bigotry and fear the yellow kid which didn't actually have word balloons but it it initiated the idea of having text married with an image because the yellow kid if you're unfamiliar was like the first really popular comic strip and he wore this giant yellow smock and as he would wander around New York, what he was saying or thinking would appear on the yellow smock on his chest.
1: He's a modern day equivalent of that that guy, that comedian from the Dave Matthews Band music video, who's also in Dirty Rock, who just wears those hats that all have different messages on them.
0: Yes. The yellow kid was Judah Friedlander of the 1910s. Mm-hmm. That's
1: exactly what I said.
0: You said it. I backed you up. The Yellow Kid was a spinoff from the book, The Cats and Jammer Kids, which was um, one of the first kind of proletariat aimed comic strips. Uh, they were basically like a bunch of immigrant kids that would run around New York. And uh, this strip, you know, was somewhat endearing, but also kind of punching down at them. But, you know, Winsor McCay didn't go in for that racist shit, right? His first project was an almost comic called A Tale of the Jungled Imps by Felix Fiddle. They were illustrated versions of poems by George Randolph Chester. You I've know, included some images of the... Uh,
1: some things shouldn't be illustrated. Some things should just be left as poems. And maybe even not poems.
0: Yeah, basically the these strips are from the Cincinnati Inquirer, which ran... This first image ran January 23rd, 1903. And it's titled uh, How the Quilly Pig Got Its Quills. Uh, and it's about... It's like an urban folklore, I guess, of how a porcupine came to be um in Africa and so there are these little wildly problematic african villager characters chasing a sort of tasmanian devil looking creature and poking it with little quills um and uh they're exactly what you think they are they're wearing bush skirts and they have wildly problematic depictions of uh you know facial features large lips large eyes, so on and so forth. It's a uh, deeply, deeply bigoted, but again, 1903. So, you know, xenophobia is the, uh, the coin of the realm as it were.
1: And the little animal in one panel, he just looks at the camera and like a dinosaur in a Flintstones episode and goes, I don't know what hurts worse. The getting stabbed by quills or the horrible racism.
0: Yeah. And you know, in a lot of these tale of a jungle imp, uh, stories you know they these same characters show up over and over again these these little impish sambo drawings which makes me uncomfortable to say but that's kind of the best way to describe them unfortunately um and they, they actually show up in his later work too the um the more heralded and acclaimed work these these same characters uh pop up i mean look the dude was born in the 1800s i guess it's to be expected right It was around this time that Windsor McKay packed up his bags, making sure to toss in a little xenophobia with his toothbrush, and he made the leap.
1: Put some carpets in there, too. Fill that bag up with carpets.
0: He moved to the Big Apple, NYC, to work for the New York Herald. He started doing illustrations and then political and editorial cartoons for them. This really raised his profile as a working artist. McKay would quickly branch out and start doing comics and illustrations for other New York publications, because... We all need money. He did his first continuing strip titled Mr. Good Enough for the Saturday Evening Telegram. These early strips are, you know, they have word balloons and they're, they're well rendered, but they're kind of, um, they're obviously produced quickly. You know, they're not labored over as some of his later work would be. Um, they're, they're kind of weird and surreal too. Like he kind of just always had this weird penchant for surreality.
1: Yeah, it was like a little little baby in a bowl. The final panel. I don't know what's going on in this comic, but the final panel is just a little tiny pellet-shaped baby sitting in a little, like, um like cereal bowl. Yeah,
0: or like a little basin or something, yeah. He followed that up with the impossibly titled Sister Little Sister's Bow, who was quickly canceled. That's another thing that I think it is so funny about the comic strips from this time period, because... A, just culture was different at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, and B, because there were no real, like, you didn't have a sense of commercial viability of what a simple name for a comic strip should be. A lot of the newspaper strips from this time period are just fucking bizarre named, like Sister Little Sister's Bow.
1: Sister Little Sister's Bow is like the, the last dying sound of a sentient jukebox filled with Elvis records.
0: Yeah, it really is. It was quickly canceled, though, probably because the name just sucks, even by 1903 standards. Next up for Windsor McKay was the Furious Finish of Foolish Phillips Funny Frolics.
1: Fuck you, Windsor McKay.
0: And all of those are with a PH. There's not an F in any of that shit.
1: No F's given.
0: No F's given. No F's given. Believe it or not, now that gets canceled pretty quickly. And then we get to Windsor McKay's first strip that was actually popular, which was called Little Sammy Sneeze. And it's a very, you know, it's a tried and true formula. Every strip is this little boy, Sammy, dealing with his family or friends. And it ends with him sneezing in a slapstick like, and then things fall over and everyone goes, Hoo-hoo! and that's it. It's just the same gag every fucking time.
1: If only I had known that that's all you had to do. In
0: 1903.
1: Imagine imagine Deep Cuts back then.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Deep Cuts. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's the whole show. But yeah, it's the same fucking gag every goddamn time. Little Sammy Sneeze just sits there and then he sneezes. But I would like to say that even in that very simple formula, he's still getting really metatextual. Like, here's one, one of the ones that I included in the script is panel one is little Sammy Sneeze going, uh, panel two is the same, it's a stat, the same image, but he's kind of inhaling a little bit and he's like, uh, uh, panel three, same image, but now he's like rearing his head back and he's full about to sneeze, uh, panel four, mouth is as wide as it can go, Ugh. Panel five, he's sneezing and the panel borders are breaking. Yeah,
1: it breaks the panel.
0: Panel six, he like looks at the viewer while covered in the rubble of the panel. That's crazy. That's, that's just some Charlie Kaufman. 1903 shit right there
1: yeah it reminds me of it's really cool and it reminds me of something i talked about with you before um that uh, this old buster keaton short film called house decorating where um you know at at a similar time it was i think it was 1924 it was like it was like a you know maybe maybe 15 or so years later but it's a short where buster keaton is going around doing all these different renovations to this house and there's you know the physical gags that ensue but then there's a B story where there's a a woman that's living in the house and she's just doing all these random things around the house she's making lunch and um, cleaning up and eventually she takes a bath and um, it just keeps cutting back and forth between the two and uh, Buster Keaton stuff is all just like physical sight gags and him falling off of roofs and doing all these things and hers are kind of these more kind of like smaller mundane physical comedy where like she tries to open up this bottle of cream or something and it like explodes in her face and and then she's in uh, the bathtub and um, we can see her in the bathtub and she's, you know, her head to her shoulders is come is, is visible and she's kind of like bent over and she picks up a bar of soap and she drops it out of the bathtub and then she tries to reach over to get it. She can't quite reach and she reaches a little further and then she gets to the point the point where she would need to like get up and sort of reveal herself to the camera. And so she's about to do it and then a hand or yeah, hand comes out from behind the camera, like the cameraman's hand comes out and then covers the lens. And then a couple seconds later, it moves back out of the way and she's got the bar of soap and she kind of like smiles coquettishly at the camera and um, I love stuff like that because uh, you know we, we talk so much about outsider art on this show and you know this was kind of like in the early in the early existence of these art forms it was kind of outsider art by design because they were inventing and trailblazing the rules and the form around these things and I love the idea of you know something like this that you know yes in a modern lens it's very metatextual textual but or it or kind of like postmodern in a way but in reality it was just somebody without the established meta of what these art forms were just kind of playing with the you know pushing the boundaries around it and kind of feeling for like the types of things that they could do um and this reminds me of that where it's you know it's just you know you might people get experimental with panel layout in the way that they manipulate the meta of being in a comic and what a comic is now, but there are very well-established rules where this might, this might almost seem kind of gimmicky to do nowadays if you, you did something like this. But at the time, it was somebody just playing with this concept in a way that nobody ever had even thought of before, which is really interesting.
0: McKay would use this formula of displaying time over the course of the page and then causing a break in the last panel in almost everything else you would do. And apparently, little Sammy has the ability to shatter reality or at least break the fourth wall. In his next strip, titled Dream of a Rare Bit Fiend, our boy, McKay, would be back again with the terrible-ass titles. And just to break it down for somebody who might not be versed in turn-of-the-century terminology, Dream of a Rarebit Fiend is saying that it's a dream being had by someone who enjoys eating rare meat, so it's almost like the implication being that you're you're witnessing the dreams of a rich kid who's eaten steak that was undercooked, and so there's kind of this implicit like we're in, we're about to be in you know the Great Depression and World War One is about to start uh, in whatever it is. And, oh, and I guess that's way longer than because it starts in like nineteen, right? Um, or is it eleven? When did World War One start?
1: Nineteen fourteen.
0: Yeah, it's like nineteen fourteen to nineteen nineteen, right? Yeah
1: 1914 to nineteen
0: right? um, yeah, 19- eighteen. Yeah, so you know, nineteen 19- World War One's coming up in nineteen fourteen, and you know, there the there's a there's a there's a, the the Roaring Twenties are around the corner. You know, American culture is starting to develop, and so there's this idea that there's kind of implicit joy in seeing a rich person being brought back down to size right and uh that's kind of what the implied underbelly of dream of rarebit fiend is the
1: specific the specificity of that premise is so weird the 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 odd specificity of that and then also the sammy sneeze where it's just like this comic is specifically about a kid who sneezes and then this is like it is specifically a comic about different people who have weird dreams because they've eaten rare meat that's that's very strange
0: yeah it's really weird um and it's 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 interesting too though because the setups are kind of the same and it kind of functions in a very similar way like Dream of a Rabbit Fiend is this sequel to Sammy Sneeze in that you're following these characters and sometimes the characters repeat. Um, and it, it, it basically ends the same goddamn way every time. Like it's just somebody falling out of a bed or sitting up in a bed or rolling over in a bed and being like, Oh, that was a bad dream. It's really weird. But like one of them, you know, that I want to talk about for a second is the the Dream of a Rabbit Fiend where you're, you're witnessing a bed flying through a black void. And it's it's just so blatantly apparent that he had a dream about being on a bed that was flying through some endless void. And he was like, I'm going to make this into a comic. And so there's this little boy, he's flying on the bed, the bed zooming around and he's being bucked off of the bed, almost like a bucking bronco. And then the second to last panel, the boy is hanging by his pants from a weather vane. And then the next panel... The composition is very similar in that the boy is hanging from a bed, like off the side of the bed, in the same way that he was hanging from the weather vane. And it's like a sight gag almost, where it's like, isn't it kooky? He fell out of the bed.
1: And then he was like, boy, howdy, that filet mignon sure did a number on me.
0: (laughs) Boy, howdy, I hate people that are from other races.
1: Sound clip. Sound clip. Dave Baker wants to be your new senator. But did you know that he said this?
0: Dream of a Rarebit Fiend features the same dream logic and eerie stories uh, that are, you know, kind of like another comic that our boy, Windsor McKay, would make that he was way more famous for. Which leads us to his next project, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Little Nemo, the character, appeared in Dream of a Rarebit Fiend, so the strip is technically a spinoff. Arguably, one of the most important leaps forward in the technical innovation of the comics medium, Windsor McKay created Little Nemo in Slumberland in 1905. The strip fills a full newspaper broadsheet and sees Nemo going on surreal journeys and then abruptly waking up, just like the other McKay strips. The the leap forward in the craft of illustration from Dreamer Rabbit Fiend to uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland is just it's almost doesn't look like the same person. Like they're so good. Like you could basically put little Nemo and slumberland out right now. And it would look completely like something that was published today by Fantagraphics or something.
1: I mean, he just, he upped the, the raw meats.
0: He just, he just was just like fast and furious turbo style. But you know, he put that, he put the nitrous, but the nitrous was just fucking raw bleeding cow's heart. Um, it's, it's interesting too, cause he kind of has like these specific stylistic proclivities that he just, I hesitate to say that he's to, to land on which side of the aisle on these, but he's either obsessed by these things or haunted by these things. But he find, he's just got like a, an insane compulsion to draw large multi-windowed buildings like skyscrapers, um, beds. He draws beds all the time, like, flying beds beds with legs walking beds super intelligent bay beds beds with arms like he he draws them incessantly
1: well it's interesting it's interesting because it's like you know uh lying in bed asleep unconscious is our kind of most vulnerable prone state of being um where you just you know you're you you are completely unaware, unaware of your surroundings you're wearing pajamas it's very you know especially back in this time the disparity between the way that we dress up to go outside versus the way that we look whenever we're inside our house going to sleep is, you know, the the, the gulf is massive. You, you know, you dress up to the nines. It's, 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 it's culturally normalized that you have to be wearing this like four piece suit at all times and a top hat and all this shit um, and kind of uh, uh, juxtaposing those two things and. You know, it is it's kind of like a dream scenario or a nightmare scenario where you you know that that idea of like going to school and realizing you're naked or in your underwear or whatever, like to wake up and be out in society um, amongst this industrial complex or this this industrial park of businesses and, you know, very, very formal places. But you're in your nightgown and in bed and kind of in this very, you know, laying in bed is kind of a very absurd position to be in. Like if you if, if you're in bed and you somebody comes over, you immediately kind of feel self-conscious that you're in bed. You want to get up. You want to get into a more, you know, a sitting position. You want to get into a chair. Um, it's embarrassing to be sort of viewed that way by a, a, a person outside of your your house. Um, So it's, it's, it's interesting to, to juxtapose those two ideas and yeah, the, the, the sort of maybe, yeah, maybe it is, maybe it is an obsession. Maybe it's something that haunted him. I mean, obviously it's not the worst nightmare to have, but to have recurring dreams that you're sort of forcibly put into a position where you are, your inner most vulnerable state of being is thrust out into, you know, the prim and proper society.
0: Yeah. And, and also just the, the fact that he probably you know at this point in time drawing was not something that normal people could do you know like it wasn't we didn't have art classes in fucking schools and whatnot to the same degree that we do now so there's there's also probably got to be some aspect of the fact that because he was obviously dogged by this trauma that he endured as a kid when his entire town burned down he was almost kind of like, like a, it's like a spiritual calling of like, I can do this thing, therefore I must do this thing because almost no one else can, Um, especially because he didn't have access to the internet or anything. So it must have been very lonely in certain aspects of it because you're not interacting with people that are, you know, today you can go on Twitter and whatever subculture or interest you have, there's an entire group of people you can digitally befriend and get to know and learn from. Whereas he taught himself everything, basically.
1: Yeah, all they had back then was 56k, and then you know, don't even get me started. When your mom needed to use the phone, you had to disconnect from it, and then you had to reconnect. And that took forever. And at a certain point, it's like, yeah, I'm just, gonna, I don't, it's not even worth it. It's going it's to take another 40 minutes to get back onto here. Screw it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna dedicate myself to mastering and a, a near Herculean level of illustration talent.
0: Yep. Yeah, he's also really obsessed with size differentials. Like, he really loves putting small children at, like, 500 feet or giant buildings really small or a bed very, very large or a car very, very small. Like, or not a car because it's fucking 1900. But you know what I mean? Like, he loves...
1: Yeah, he also, inv- he also invented cars.
0: Yeah, he came up with cars. Isn't that crazy? Um, but yeah, his illustrations are just fucking astounding like they're they're so good and also sometimes racist over the course of the series which ran from nine years until 1914 there develops a dreamlike continuity throughout the story world a king of dreams is introduced nemo goes on harrowing adventure after adventure massive underground catacombs large castles and anthropomorphized beds because windsor mckay hell these pages are even unique 120 years later The strip is both high concept and metaphorical fine art at the same time. McKay's comics were a deliberate choice by the papers to try and elevate the comic strips out of the lower classes like the Katzenjammer kids to make them more bourgeois. On top of the draftsmanship and the technical innovation that Nemo had, it also had a narrative innovation. McKay experimented with the grid, with ascending step formations, with asymmetrical panels, with circle panels. He was a tinkerer, an inventor, with a curious mind and it shows on the page, which is hilarious when you look at his letters. They suck. They're just like weird trash bags filled with like alphabet soup. They're so bad. Like everything he does is so considered and has so much energy and time and thought put into it. And then his letters are just, it's like he's writing with a fucking ballpoint pen and he doesn't He just doesn't care at all. It's so
1: bizarre. They look look like the the word balloons that you would do like in a comic that you drew on line paper in like elementary school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And here's where we arrive at our turning point for old Xenius Windsor McKay, where we get to the point where most people strive for their whole lives to reach. He's at the top of his game, making a good living off of his art. And what does he do? He invents something even better,
1: besides cars.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please
1: join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod.
0: Act 2, The Invisible Art. In 1906, McKay was approached by a vaudeville promoter, F.F. Proctor, to perform what were at the time referred to as chalk talks. These were basically performance art and theater shows where a cartoonist would draw or perform, or both. Think a YouTube tutorial, but make it old-timey and probably bigoted. I mean, yes, it's very racist, but look at how fucking weird that is! It's like a sleigh with goats for wheels and like a frog as the headlamp like what is this
1: winsor mckay was tripping balls on some turn-of-the-century snuff
0: dude he was he was getting down with the with the cats and jam us, if you know what i'm saying
1: he was tripping on some newly tendered indoor plumbing and sanitation system he was high on getting to shit inside of a house for the first time in history
0: McKay's original deal was that he would draw 25 drawings in 15 minutes as a band played. Remember, at this point in time, drawing was almost like magic. People had an incredible constraint on their time. So the idea of just learning something that would take years and years to master was just out of the realm of possibility. As information traveled much slower, and people were exposed to much less. In 1905, the idea of being able to watch an artist draw Must have been crazy.
1: Now we're not satisfied unless there's someone fucking drawing 90s rap album covers onto pancakes.
0: And then flipping it upside down and it turning out to be a portrait of Bruce Lee.
1: And then fucking Logan Paul has got to eat it and shit it out. Or else we're just like, fuck this. This is boring.
0: His routine then evolved into an adaptation of his Dream of a Rarebit Fiend comic. And then eventually McKay created The Seven Ages of Man where he drew faces and progressively aged them. Shockingly, McKay still managed to keep up his comics output schedule as well. He would often not sleep, drawing in his hotel rooms and backstage. It was around this time McKay became obsessed with, in air quotes, making pictures move. He began to contemplate how he could create the illusion of a film by laboriously making drawings and then repeating them over tracing paper over and over and over again. Inspired by flip books that his son had brought home, McKay developed what was widely considered the first fully animated short film titled Gertie the Dinosaur. To put it simply, he invented the art of animation.
1: We have a troll in Central Park because of Windsor McKay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The film features animated and live action footage cut together. The first few minutes of the short tell the story of McKay and a few other cartoonists palling around and then making a bet that McKay couldn't, in air quotes, reanimate a dinosaur's skeleton. None of this actually happened, obviously, but it actually does kind of suck the viewer in, and it's a simple premise that provides a conflict-oriented motivation for why someone would spend six months drawing the same thing over and over and over again. It helps the layperson understand what's happening and why. To make things even weirder, it actually works. Like, it really works. Like, not just, oh, good for you, you old, timey, kooky cartoonist. Like, it looks like someone just made a college short film today. For the logistics of the production, McKay ended up doing all the Gertie the Dinosaur drawings, and his neighbor, an art student named John A. Fitzsimmons, traced all the backgrounds. McKay also invented the concept of, in air quotes, in-betweening, he would draw all the major poses and then go back in and fill in the middle spaces. He called this the McKay Split System, which is still used to this day, just, you know, with a better title.
1: I'm going to start calling it that now, from now on, though. The McKay
0: Split System? Mm -hmm. I agree, you should. What's even more impressive about this is that McKay refused to patent the system. Open source, 1912-style, motherfuckers. McKay also pioneered the use of registration marks and cycling, meaning rocking an animated sequence back and forth to achieve the feeling of repeated motion. Ever the showman, McKay played the animation during his vaudeville act and would get up on stage and give Gertie directions, appearing to control the dinosaur. In the climactic ending of the film, he would literally jump up onto the screen in a sleight-of-hand trick and ride Gertie off-camera. Have you ever seen this short film, the, the Gertie the Dinosaur movie? It's so weird. It's... It i mean i know i said it in the script but it just really does look like something that could be made today it's it's fucking astounding
1: yeah it's amazing and it, yeah it's 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 amazing how some something like that an art form and this is true with animation and photography and i feel like i feel like i feel like actual motion picture has been the art form that has actually evolved and changed the most and away from what it sort of originally was but Animation and photography, like they're essentially still the same as they were from the beginning. I mean, obviously, we have like computer generated like every every, there's no such thing as 2D animated feature films anymore. Like nobody makes them anymore. Um, It's all computer generated. So that's different. But if you know you're talking about 2D animated television or even I guess some of the rare situations where there are is 2D animated feature films. It's even when it's digital, even when it's done in flash, it's still essentially the same exact art form that it was when it was invented.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty mind boggling to contemplate. And also the fact that he was doing all this while also running a full time newspaper strip, making giant like 36 by 42 illustrations every week and coloring them by hand on acetate or whatever the fuck they used on in 1905. It couldn't have been acetate. I don't even know how they colored comics in 1905.
1: Working for the enemy of all great art, William Randolph Hearst.
0: McKay had been working for newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst since 1911. However, just as his technical innovations and popularity started to skyrocket, Hearst began to become frustrated that he couldn't reach McKay during shows. Hearst also thought that McKay shouldn't be wasting his time doing these performances and that he should be concentrating on drawing editorial illustration. That's right, not comics, editorial illustration. Initially, Hearst made McKay sign a contract that would just limit his vaudevillian appearances and then moved it to only being able to perform in greater New York. And eventually, Hearst forced McKay to stop performing entirely, basically death by attrition. McKay would leave and return to Hearst a few times over the ensuing years, always lured back in with rewards of more money. He returned to Nemo for a reboot, but the strip didn't succeed in the way that it had in the past. It's almost like McKay had found his true path and then was robbed of it by Randolph Hearst. Later in life, at an animation dinner held in his honor, when he felt the people in the room weren't processing his thoughts on the state of animation well enough, he issued a stern warning.
1: Animation is an art. This is how I conceived it. But as I see, what you fellows have done with it is making it into a trade. Not an art, but a trade. Bad luck.
0: (laughs) I kind of wish you had done all the Laz Rojas stuff in that voice.
1: (laughs) I know it doesn't sound anything like Laz Rojas, but I love that voice. I need my $10,000 for the control of my life rights. I am going to email vice 40 times a day until you give me my $10,000. And until then, I'm going to continue living in the streets with my mother, even though I could just put her on a plane and have her live in a comfy, probably huge Florida estate for the rest of her life. But no, she has to live with me in my car because I have to make movies.
0: <laughs> Windsor McKay passed away on July 26th, 1934. He was roughly 50 years old. Again, He didn't quite know exactly his birth year, so he didn't exactly know how old he was. Ultimately, Winston McKay left behind a massive body of work, including 12 completed films, three unfinished films, a mountain of editorial illustration and strips, and 12 comic strips.
1: I did more with the half of a lifespan that I had over you than you'll do in your entire life.
0: Winsor McKay is one of the greatest illustrators in global history. Did you fucking invent animation? He's responsible for making key contributions to the arts of animation, comics, performance, and one of the people that, you know, didn't get fucked over by a fat cat, even though he kind of did, and continues to have an enduring legacy to this day. But, you know, he also was a racist, and his lettering kind of sucked.
1: Oh, you do a podcast? Interesting. I invented an entire art form.
0: Uh so here's a question. Can you think of an artist that has had as long or relevant a reach as Windsor McKay? Like do you think do you think hundred years from now people are gonna be looking back at Spielberg? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was mostly just trolling. But I mean, just like, you know, is there somebody because he literally invented the goddamn medium and basically invented comics, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I think he has he has a huge leg up on any other creator in terms of legacy in that not only did he create this body of work, but he also revolutionized an art form or multiple art forms. Like there's really, you know, it's kind of an example of being there at the ground floor like. There's not a whole lot of people who can claim that. There's not a lot of people that were born early enough to have been around to be able to have invented the thing that they are um, a master craftsman at. I mean, it's it's the same. It's the same thing as Thomas Edison. Like, what other inventors do you know about? They're, they're, like, name a. F- five inventors off the top of your head other than other than other than Lonnie Johnson
0: I was gonna say Lonnie Johnson the guy that made the segue who was the son of an EC Comics artist which I'm blanking on which one he was the son of maybe Graham Ingalls I don't remember uh Nikola Tesla Edison uh Leonardo da Vinci like you know I mean
1: the reason why Leonardo da Vinci and namely Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla, you know, come to mind and they're like literally the only inventors you can think of. It's not to say that other inventors throughout the decades have not invented immensely important things. It's that as time goes on, the things that the the available things to invent get more and more specific and obscure and you have to drill down deeper and deeper into making these hyper specific discoveries. Whereas Thomas Edison was just around and also he look, he didn't actually invent a lot of these things. He just had a team of people and he sort of claimed credit for all these patents. But let's say hypothetically, he did personally invent all these things. He was around when nothing had been invented yet. So he was like, yeah, I'll claim the light bulb, this thing that we fucking use in our houses every day. I invented that because he was just there to invent it before it got invented. Um, so you know, Windsor McKay has a massive leg up on carving out a legacy that could never be sort of forgotten because he just was there before animation existed. Like who, you know, who who else can say that?
0: I'm Dave Baker.
1: And I'm Andrew Price.
0: This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com where you can find comics like Action Hospital and Fuck Off Squad. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet?
1: You can find me floating through a turn-of-the-century business industrial park in my nightgown on a flying bed. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can pick up my book, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please
0: join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.
1: The incidental music for this episode was created by the Dead Boy Detectives.